you know, oftentimes we can start to become uh, more attached to the way that we do things than the reason we did those things in the first place. Sometimes we can become more attached to the way we do things than the reason we did those things in the first place, particularly <clears throat> in our institutions. Institutions have this um, kind of this pathway that, that, seems to, that they all seem to take where um, something cool happens and then we start to sort of overcomplicate it to try to solidify it in some way. And there becomes a, a sort of a rigidity to it. And oftentimes when something comes in and challenges a system <clears throat> that's been built, uh, we attack it like a virus, <laughs> like an autoimmune disease, right? It, it, something comes in and challenges the way we do things, and we don't like that. And the older we get, maybe you guys know this to be true, the older we get, the more we like the way we do things. It's like that old adage, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like, the older I get, I, I start to figure, you know, I like this kind of toothpaste. I know what kind of toothpaste I like now. I, I know what kind of chair I would like to have in my, and the older I get, the more I know what kind of car I want to have, and we become rigid, we become stiff in the way that we like things to be done. The same thing is true of an institution. When someone comes in and challenges an institution and starts pushing on why uh, <clears throat> they do certain things a certain way, it, it sort of um, sets off alarms, and people get really defensive. Let me give you an example. Uh, how many of you guys have seen the movie Moneyball? Anybody? Two people, great, I have some work to do. Okay, so, so the movie Moneyball is based on a true story. Uh, back in the 90s, it's about Major League Baseball, which caveat, I don't know anything about baseball, so I'm not gonna use the right terms, whatever, okay? Um, but basically, back in the 90s, <clears throat> um, so a little, little bit of backstory. Uh, in, in the uh, Major League Baseball, one of the ways it works is, is that you trade players and you buy and sell players, you buy contracts. And what that means is that the really rich teams like the New York Yankees and the Giants, and they have the money to buy the best players. And the teams that don't have much money are kind of left with what's left over. And, and oftentimes the big players will farm out the best players from the other teams and put them into the, the better, better teams. So this movie's really intriguing. I'm not a baseball fan, but the movie's intriguing because the character who's played by Brad Pitt, he is, <clears throat> he's challenging the status quo. He, he sees the, the fact that he, he works, he's the general manager for the Oakland A's, and they're, they're on like a fraction of the budget of the other teams. And they just are realizing we simply can't play the game the way that everyone else is playing the game. So he goes to the drawing board and he, he thinks philosophically different. And he says, what if we approach this game differently? What if rather than buying players, we bought runs? And, and he takes an algorithm, sort of an idea, a totally different approach to baseball. And what makes the movie so interesting is, is that he gets totally lambasted for it by the baseball community. They just go into like, they go into survive mode and they start eating him alive because why? Because he's challenging the way that they think baseball is supposed to be played. See, in a sense, they're, they're less concerned about winning games and they're actually more concerned about keeping baseball the way baseball should be, the way they've invented it to be. The, uh, the bureaucracy of the establishment has, has solidified the way they want things to go and anyone that comes in and challenges that is an enemy. This is the reality of any institution, any organization. We, we, we start to value the way we do things instead of the reason we did them in the first place. And then it can become unhealthy. And that's where sometimes you need reformation. Now, why am I saying all this? Jesus is coming into the establishment of the religion of Israel. 
And when I say a religion of Israel, I do not mean the religion that God made and handed off to Moses on Sinai. I mean the religion that it had morphed and, 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 and turned into uh, through years and years and years of complexity. The religious leaders took a hold of the old covenant and they overcomplicated it. We have volumes called Mishnah, uh, Mishnah and, and I can't remember the name of the other one, Talmud, which are commentaries. They're volumes and volumes and volumes of commentaries um, qualifying and explaining what the law actually says. And we'll see this in, in weeks to come. Uh, you, you know, it's not just that you keep Sabbath. You're, you're not allowed to pick grain with your hands because that's considered working when you separate the grain from, from the wheat. They'd complicated, they created, they took what God made and they overcomplicated. That's what we do, right? We overcomplicate things. We want qualifiers. Tell me, how far can I go before I'm breaking Sabbath? That's what they'd done. They'd created a false religion. So Judaism, you have to realize this, when Jesus comes into first century Israel, he's pushing on, he's challenging not God's authentic covenant community. He's pushing and challenging a false religion that had been created by bad spiritual leadership. You could call it apostate Israel. Israel was not functioning the way God had intended. And so just like this analogy, just like this, this coming into an institution and challenging it, Jesus is pushing hard on the way Israel does things. And guess what? They don't like it. They don't like it. You think we have cancel culture nowadays? They had cancel culture back then. It's called the cross. <laughs> they shut Jesus down. He came in doing something they didn't like, and they systematically made sure he went to death. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing in our text this morning in chapter two, we're gonna see why Jesus' ministry, note the word, was so incompatible with the false religion of Israel, the false religion that Israel had become. Note that word, incompatible. That's what Jesus, I think, wants us to see here. The incompatibility between true religion and false religion, between his work and between the traditions of men, the dead religion of religious people. Jesus is trying to clarify that for us. Uh, incompatibility, what does that mean? It means you're on a different page. It means you're on a completely different page. <clears throat> so you're incompatible. I remember uh, my, my best friend back there, Mike Daniels, him and I were in a Bible study one time. This is so funny. And I think we were studying Ephesians. I might be getting it backwards. We were studying Ephesians. And the way we used to do this Bible study is we'd take 10 minutes on our own and we'd all sit and, and interact with the text and we'd write down thoughts and then after 10 minutes we'd have a conversation. So we all take 10 minutes and we're writing down thoughts and Mike's writing down thoughts and I'm writing down thoughts. And then we're like, okay guys, let's have a conversation. And all of a sudden we all start sharing these thoughts and Mike's just like, wow. Wow, I didn't, I didn't, where did you get that? Wow, that's amazing. I didn't see that. Where are you getting that in the passage? And, and then after about five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes later, we realize Mike's in Romans and we're in Ephesians. And he totally studied the wrong passage, right? We're on the wrong page. Our conversation at that point is incompatible. Okay, incompatible. Let me give another example of incompatible. Uh, I was famous at my last church when I was the worship leader. I was famous for starting the song in the wrong key. And my band would just like, I could feel them just like killing me in their mind when I would do this because I'd start and I'd be playing and I'm like, where are they at? Where's the band? What's going on? And I'm playing in the wrong key. Incompatible. Let me give you another example of incompatible. Um, style lately, okay? I guess I'm turning into that age where I am no longer compatible with 
common style. I was driving from Fred Meyer the other day and I saw a, a young, trendy, 20-year-old with a mullet. And I'm not talking like just a little long in the back, like he had the spiky top and full-on mullet. Incompatible. I'm not going there. I'm not going. This is where I'm going to stay for the rest of my life. I'm going to be, I'm going to be out of style. That's okay. I'm incompatible. You, you ever go to Europe and you try to plug your United States, you know, uh, your, your, uh, into the, the European place? It doesn't work. It's incompatible. Are you, are you getting what I'm saying? Jesus is bringing truth. He's bringing, um, his, his kingdom is breaking in and the establishment is going incompatible. Doesn't work. Doesn't click. Doesn't fit. Something's wrong. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read it. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7. He's describing the false religion of Israel. He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? To what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread, he's fasting, drinking no wine, and you say, he's a demon. And then the Son of Man, Jesus, comes eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, note that, and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter what I do, you have deemed me incompatible because I'm a threat to the institution of your false religion. And Jesus is trying to unearth that for them to see and he will ultimately be canceled. Jesus' redemptive work is ultimate reality and it is breaking in and Israel isn't sure what to think about it. So in our text... We're going to see four pictures that Jesus is going to paint. And those four pictures are going to help us understand why his kingdom is so incompatible with the kingdom of this world, with the false religion of Judaism. And it's actually, it's an amazing passage. We're going to learn, I think, a lot here about what Jesus is doing, why it's different. He's He's going to give us four pictures. And let me give you the point of all four pictures. You want to write them down. Here's the point of all four pictures. The first picture, he's trying to make this point, that his kingdom is a hospital for the sick instead of a hideout for the self-righteous. The second picture is he's trying to make a point that his kingdom is a wedding feast for the groom instead of a waiting fast for the guests. And then the third picture, he's going to make this point, that his kingdom is a healing work of redemption instead of a torn and false religion. And lastly, he's going to make the point that his kingdom is an expansive invitation instead of a rigid nationalism. I'll hit those again as we go through if you're frantically trying to write those down. Let's start with number one, a hospital for the sick instead of a hideout for the self-righteous. Look at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. That's what Jesus did. The majority of his time, he was teaching. Why is he teaching? He's teaching because he's trying to get them to see this new work that he's doing, and they don't have eyes to see it. He's trying to slowly, graciously, patiently put it before their eyes. You ever use one of those pictures uh, or you ever look at one of those picture books where when you first look at it, it just looks like a mess, like abstract, and then the more you start it, you, you start to see something emerge from that. But when you don't see it, it's just frustrating. It just looks like a terrible picture. But once you see it, you can't not see it. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, it's like an abstract. Okay. Uh, so, so Jesus is trying to get these guys to see something, th- but they're not seeing it. 
And he keeps putting it before him. He's teaching, preaching, trying to preach the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the particularities of it, and it's incompatible, just incompatible. Verse 14. And now what he's about to do is totally going to scandalize these guys. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Who's Levi? Who's Levi? It's Matthew. You know him as Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the fact that Jesus is calling this man takes some, some first century unpacking a little bit. It's so scandalous that Jesus calls this man. Let me tell you why. What was a tax collector? What did they do? Uh, we were joking, by the way. This might offend somebody. Uh, we were joking uh, with the staff at Heritage. We were talking about this passage. We are like, what's the modern day equivalent of a tax collector? And one of the pastors was all, what about a vax collector? Sorry, I don't know, maybe that's, too pol- maybe that's too political, but I thought it was funny, depending on the vax collector. Okay, get the vaccine. Okay, sorry. Anyways, not that there's anything wrong with getting the vaccine. Everybody can, just whatever, do what you want to do. I literally put that in italics because I was like, you probably shouldn't make that joke, and I did it anyways. Shoot. So the tax collector, you would have to spit after you say that. Tax collector, Puh. This guy was the refuse of culture. What the tax collectors did was Rome came in, they were, uh, they were the, uh, the empire that owned Israel, and the, the way that they extracted the money from Israel is that they would, they would actually um, bid, uh, they would open it up for bidding for someone to buy the franchise of that area. So a, uh, someone would come in and buy that, and their job was to collect the money and give it to uh, Herod Antipas, who would ultimately kick it up to Caesar, kick it up to Rome. Now, what, what was so nefarious about this was that the way they made their money was that they only had to get X amount of money to the hierarchies, and then they could charge anything they wanted above that. So in order to make money, they're upcharging, they're up, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're scandalously basically asking for more money than they need from their own kindred people. Now, notice Levi's name. His name's Levi, one of the 12 tribes. This is a Jewish man who has betrayed his people is betraying his people, is extortion, ripping off his people every day. There were two different kinds of tax collectors. One was the go-by tax collector. That's sort of like your income tax, sort of that stuff that you expect that's coming every year. Then there was the Molek tax collector. These were the guys that nickel-dimed you to death. Every time you cross the bridge, every time you catch a fish, every time you buy your candy bar, uh, tax, tax, tax. This is Levi. He would have known Peter, James, John. He's sitting in Capernaum, and every day they're dealing with this idiot that every time they catch a fish, he stops them and overcharges them, and he has a large house because he takes their money. He would have been very familiar to these men. You know that? He was like, oh, some tax. No, this, he would have been around. They would have known him. He was a terrible man. He would have, would have, would have been despised by the Jews. Listen to this. Talmud records, uh, when a Jew entered the customs service, that is tax collector, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or witness. That means you couldn't get jury duty. Doesn't sound bad to me. Uh, In a court session. Was excommunicated from the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his family. That means if your son became a tax collector, your whole family's disgraced. You were not allowed to, or you were not uh, supposed to take any money from tax collectors. So a tax collector comes and tries to buy something from your business, you're not supposed to take it. Because it's almost certain that that money was stolen from other Jews. 
Jews were allowed, according to Talmud, not the Bible, okay? According to Talmud, Jews were allowed to lie to tax collectors. That's how much they were despised. Touching a tax collector rendered you unclean. Cannot get access into the temple. It's unreal. And not only were they despised by Jews, they were despised by Romans because they were traitors and Rome had no uh, respect for traitors, even though they were on their team. So these guys have really no one except for the other tax collectors and the other sinners, the other refuse of culture to spend time with. So this is who Jesus calls. Notice when Jesus calls him. He calls him while he's sinning. He calls him while he's sinning. He doesn't say, hey, uh, Levi, finish up your day, clean yourself up, and then I'm going to come talk to you about this idea of you becoming an apprentice of mine. That's not what he does. He calls him when he's sinning. Notice what Jesus calls him to do. He doesn't say, hey, pray this prayer, sign up for this class, come and learn how to do these things, and, and we'll start to think about the fact that maybe you're my disciple. What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. See, it, it, what's, what's profound about this calling is not what Jesus calls him to do, it's how immediately Levi responds. It's not about the complexity of the call, it's about the immediacy of the call. See, oftentimes we overcomplicate the call. The call is not complicated, it's costly. That's what makes it telling. And Levi here clearly stands up in the middle of his work day, doesn't clean out his cash register, doesn't ask for someone to come take his place, he just stands up and walks away from his sin. He leaves everything that he was doing behind. That's a costly call. The call is to follow Jesus. He rose and he followed him immediately. Verse 15, and he reclined at the table in his house. Whose house? Levi's house. Levi's got a big house. He's a rich dude. He's been ripping off people in Capernaum for years. He's got a large house, and so he invites Jesus over to celebrate his newness of life. And guess who he invites? Prostitutes, pimps. Uh, I'm trying to think of terrible people in our culture. Uh, the, <laughs> I almost said the vax man again. No, what, he, he invites the people you hate, whoever it is, whoever you don't like. He invites them. He invites the people that, that are completely ostracized by culture. That's who he invites. And he's not just having a meal with them. What does it say? It says you reclined with them. For very special occasions, for very special events, you would not just sit and eat, you would actually recline on the floor around on these, these sort of cushion pads. Um, you would lean on, on, on your right arm and you would eat with your left arm and you would literally be just sharing a meal, dipping in the same dishes, all of these kinds of things. It was a sign of close intimacy. Jesus isn't just having a party with these guys, he's, he's having a very, uh, a, a public symbol that he is becoming one with them, that they are one group. But he's not partying with them. He's not stepping into their debauchery. It says, notice in verse 15, it says, they were followers of his. He reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors, sinners, reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. These are all the people that came too. Jesus calls Matthew, calls Levi, and all of his friends decided to become followers as well, which means they repented. They came to Jesus, and they celebrated the new life that they had. It's one of the most amazing things that happens when someone gets saved. It opens up an entirely new, uh, an entirely new uh, level of socio socioeconomic strata, right? 
And what Matthew has done, and Jesus knew this, when he calls Matthew, he's, he's like picking up the rock and all of a sudden all of this new ecosystem, this whole underbelly of Capernaum, all of the sinners, all of the tax collectors, all the, the wicked people, all of a sudden now are realizing that they too could be saved. And don't forget what just happened right before this. Jesus forgave sins publicly with the paralytic. These guys are like, the door's open. Israel had before been really defined by their willingness to shut people out, and now Jesus is opening the door. The door is open to the worst in culture. Now, they're scandalized by this. You would be too, just so you know. You would be too. You would be too. This is not normal behavior. And the scribes, verse 16, of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, now Jesus is going to clear this up with picture number one. You ready? He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, quotes, by the way, he's not saying the Pharisees are righteous, the self-righteous, but I came to call the sinners, those that are willing to admit their brokenness. So Jesus gives this picture in response to why he's having this feast with all of these sinners. He says, look, guys, it's really simple. I love Jesus's logic. We overcomplicate it. It's really simple, okay? If you are driving down the street and you see a guy wearing um, a suit and he's got blood all over his shirt, what are you thinking? You're thinking, that, that guy just killed somebody. He's like wearing a lawyer's outfit and he's covered in blood, right? Something's wrong there. That's how the scribes are seeing this, but Jesus says, no, no, you got it wrong. If you see a man walk out of a building and he's wearing scrubs, and he's got blood all over his scrubs. What do you think? That dude just saved somebody's life. He just performed an operation. Let me give you another example. You see some shady looking house on the corner and you see people that look like they're, they're, they're on drugs and they're tweaking and they're going in and there's a line of people under the house. What are you thinking? Crack house. You see those same people walking into the gospel rescue mission. You see them walking into the sobering center. What are you thinking? These people are trying to get their life together. What's the difference? The difference is what you think the purpose of, of, of the institution those people are going into is. Jesus says, the reason that you're scandalized by me spending time with sinners is, is that you don't realize I'm a physician. Where is the physician with the sick people? And you know, the best physicians, they want to find the sickest people because the sicker the person, the more glory the physician gets. So Jesus is like, I'm going for the sickest people. It's where he spent his time. So our first picture, I gave it to you before, but a hospital for sick instead of a hideout for self-righteous. Israel had become defined by its ability to separate from sick people. And Jesus says, no, 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 you missed the point. You missed the point. Picture number two, a wedding feast for the groom instead of a waiting fast for the guests. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Very common to fast in Jesus' day. Um, it's interesting, this is one of the only places that the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples get clumped in the same group. Um, and the only reason is because they're both fasting. But they're fasting for very different reasons. Uh, we know from, from the Bible that the, the scribes and the Pharisees fasted because um, it made their own public image better, right? They wanted people to see them fasting. Um, John the Baptist's disciples are fasting because they're in a uh, demeanor of anticipation. They're waiting for Jesus to come. But regardless, um, let me just say it this way. Most religious people in Jesus' day fasted. It was a sign of piety. 
How do you know if someone's really religious? Well, they, they fast. Now, the Bible only called, uh, the Old Testament only called Israel to fast one day a year. So you're only really breaking the law if you're not doing that, and that was the Day of Atonement. Outside of that, the Bible offered lots of opportunities to fast if you wanted to. The Pharisees were so about their outward piety, they would fast twice a week, and they'd do it in public so everybody could see. So again, there's, there's a miscommunication, a misunderstanding here about Jesus. So the people come to him and they ask him, why are John's disciples, why are Pharisees' disciples fasting and your disciples are not fasting? Okay, I want you to note, by the way, just a side note, um, who's asking this? It's not the Pharisees. It's just the people. Okay, we, we can always sort of say, well, the Pharisees were the ones that were scandalized by Jesus. No, it was, it was pretty much everybody the general mood about Christ was that he was very incompatible. <laughs> the people are, are confused. Why is he acting irreligious? If he's, if he's a rabbi, why is he not doing what all the other rabbis are doing? They're confused, they're asking. And I love Jesus' response. He says in verse 19, and here's where we get our second picture. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now the picture here is really basic. You know it. You've been to weddings. The worst part of the wedding is after the ceremony is over, they say, okay, pick up your chairs and take them over to the tables and you go over to the tables and then you gotta sit and wait for an hour with people you don't know trying to make awkward conversations while the bridal party goes and takes their pictures, thousands of pictures for their Instagram and you're starving and you're like, when's dinner gonna start? I want cake. Can we get things going, right? And why do you not eat? You don't eat because the bride and the groom aren't there. And then once the bride and groom come, you're clapping, but you're not clapping for them. You're clapping because it's time to eat, right? <laughs> Am I the only one that feels this way? <laughs> it's the American wedding. Nothing's changed. What's Jesus' point? When Jesus is present, everything changes. Why are you fasting? The bridegroom is here. See, this is where they'd missed it. Even John's disciples missed it. Even John, the Apostle, even John the Baptist's disciples were still confused about Jesus and who he was. He said, I am God. I'm here. What's the purpose of fasting? It's to get you to God. Jesus says, I am God and I'm here. You've fallen more in love with the way to get to me than me. Isn't that profound? Yeah. It's the second picture, a, waiting, a wedding feast for the groom instead of a waiting fast for the guests. And then Jesus says this warning in verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in the day. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross. There's gonna come a moment where Jesus is gonna be lifted up and killed, canceled. And after he's canceled, the disciples didn't know what to do. I guarantee they didn't eat much in the days after the cross. They didn't really know what to do with themselves. But the fasting resumed, or pardon me, the, the feasting resumed when? When Jesus was alive. And can I just say this? He's still alive. So what are we supposed to do? No, I'm not saying you're not supposed to fast. But primarily, the new covenant Christian, it's party time, baby. Jesus is alive. Man, we come here, we celebrate because the resurrection is proof that Jesus is still here. The bridegroom is here. And we can't wait for him to come and take us away to that eternal honeymoon, that, that eternal place that he is creating for us, where he is making a room for you. I can't wait for that. That's the new covenant Christian life. This is a life of celebration. Now, these last two pictures you're familiar with, and they're 
so profound. Jesus is a phenomenal teacher. I've been chewing on these two pictures that we're gonna read here in a minute all week, and every time I chew on them, I think of another thing about them. Jesus paints the perfect pictures, and what he's gonna do here is he's gonna give the perfect two illustrations for why Israel is so incompatible with what he's doing, okay? Let's look at the first one, picture number three. This is gonna be a healing work of redemption instead of a torn and false religion. Verse 21, no one sows Notice he says, no one. Nobody does this. Nobody does this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, the worse tear is made. You're saying, Jesus, I don't quilt. I don't understand. I didn't understand that for a long time. It's really very, very, very simple. It's very, very simple. If you take a garment that has already been washed hundreds of times, Anyone else get frustrated? Your shirt just keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. You're like, my favorite shirt, and now you can see my belly button, and no one wants to see that, right? So, you, you know, this garment, you've been, you know, typically in this time, they'd have a couple garments, if you were lucky. If you had a couple garments, you wear that garment over, and you wash it over and over and over and over again, and it's tattered, and it's worn, and it's worn out. It wasn't meant to last. And then you say, you know, I really love this garment. I want to fix the garment. So you remember that your grandma gave you a brand new garment, that fits you perfect. And so what do you do? You go and you take the garment, you get some scissors, and you cut the brand new garment into little squares. And you think, now I can patch my old garment for the rest of my life. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Not to mention, once you cut that, and then you sew it onto the old garment, and then you throw it in the washing machine, what happens? It rips. Because the new garment hasn't shrunk yet. Very, very, very simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Jesus is saying, do not take this beautiful new thing that I am doing and stitch it onto the dead religion that you have created or you will ruin them both. You cannot cram Jesus into your man-made religion. He doesn't fit. He is the new garment. Listen to what one commentator says. He says, it is important to note that the old garment to which Jesus alludes is neither the Mosaic law or the Old Testament as a whole. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. What Jesus is referring to is the system of apostate Judaism. Their rituals and ceremonies were like filthy rags. And those of you that have studied your Bible, that means minstrel rags, Isaiah 46, or Isaiah 64. It's it's, it's disgusting. They were beyond repair. Jesus did not come with the message to patch up the old system. He came to totally replace it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? There is a temptation to want to cling to something we've made because we've made it. And you know, I think, I think the Jews were partial to this old garment. After all, sort of God gave it to them. It was a gift. On Mount Sinai, God, here's a gift. It's called the Old Covenant. But it wasn't meant to last. God knew it was going to wear out, but it was going to get them to Jesus in his perfect clothes that he would clothe Israel in, clothe the, clothe the faithful in. And they wore it, and they wore it, and they wore it, and, and it shrunk, and they changed it, and they, and they patched it, and it needed to go in the garbage. You ever have a shirt like that? It just needs to go in the garbage. My wife throws this away when I'm not home. She just gets, she's like, throw, throws it away. Jesus is like, throw it away. Don't try to stitch me onto it. It's not going to work. And then we get the picture number four. Isn't Jesus an amazing teacher? I mean, the imagery that he pulls is so good. Picture number four, an expansive invitation instead of a rigid nationalism. 
We see it in verse 17. When Jesus uh, heard, pardon me, not 17, we hear it in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Very similar to the last picture. Kind of the same idea, okay? They would make a wineskin out of, out of a lamb's, literally an entire lamb hide. Okay, they would use the neck for the, um, for the spout. They would literally just fold it in half and sew it up and that would create a wineskin. And at first, the leather would be pliable and soft and it would stretch and it would expand. But over time, just like we all do, we get rigid. We're not so good at doing yoga when as we get older, right? Um, okay, the, you, you know how that works. A little harder to get out of bed. So the wineskin becomes rigid, becomes less pliable. Now, the thing about new wine is it's fermented, so it expands. So when you take new wine and you put it into an old, uh, brittle, unrigid, unpliable wineskin, it's going to expand. And what's going to happen when it expands? It's going to rip, and it's going to waste the wineskin, and it's going to waste the wine. Very simple picture. Jesus is saying, you are so stuck in your institutionalism, in your dead works-based outward religion, that you cannot possibly be a vessel that will expand with the life of the Holy Spirit that's coming. The Holy Spirit was coming and was going to do a whole new work. And the expansion, which by the way, guys, you're the expansion. If there were no new wine and new wineskins, none of us would be here. We're in Grant's Pass. You know how far that is from Israel? God opened the door to the Gentiles. That's expansion. He expanded his kingdom, and because of that, us bacon-eating Gentiles now get to be part of God's redemptive work because the swineskin stretched, and the false religion of the Jews could not be an appropriate vessel for the expansion of God's gospel work. And you read the book of Acts, you know what you see? You see the gospel explodes. It expands like leaven, Jesus says. You put it in the loaf, and, and it grows like a mustard seed. You put it in the ground, and then it grows. That's the way the kingdom works. If the kingdom's not growing, then it's dying. That's why we tell people the gospel. We desire for the wine of the Holy Spirit to grow through new birth and new life, people being born again. It's a very simple picture. So what do we do with all this? Let me give you a couple implications of this incompatibility. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' work, listen to this, Jesus' work is not shaped. It does the shaping. The indictment is not against the wine. The indictment is not against the new garment. The indictment is against the old. It is, accord, it is up to the old to fit and to stretch to the new. So what we do is the opposite. What we do is we say, Jesus, you're just not very culturally appropriate. So I'm gonna help you out a little bit. I'm gonna shape the gospel. Or, or I'm gonna stitch you on to something that's a little more culturally palatable. There's a theological word for that. It's called syncretism. So we take two things that are incompatible and we cram them together. You ever see those little coexist bumper stickers on the back of the, yeah, that's what they want to do with Jesus. Oh, Jesus is just like all the other gods. You know, I mean, he's just one, there's, there's an elephant and you're blindfolded and whatever part of the elephant you're feeling, there's many ways up the hill. What Jesus is saying here is it's not, it's not a message of inclusivity. It's a message of exclusivity. In other words, if, if you're not an appropriate wineskin, you can't house what God's doing. And there's no stitching his new work onto something old. It's an all new thing. When you got saved, 
All of your works, like filthy rags, were thrown in the garbage. You didn't do some good things and then Jesus came in and just made that a little better? No, your whole life, dead, born again. That's what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus. How do you not know these things, Nicodemus? You're a teacher of the law. How do you not know? You gotta be born again. What are you talking about, Jesus? It's all gotta go. It's all gotta die. See, we don't conform Jesus to us. Jesus conforms us to him. That's the Christian life. You are being shaped. You say, my life's hard right now. You're being shaped into the image of Christ. You're a wineskin. And he's pouring his living word, his living spirit into you, and they're stretching. That's the Christian life. I know it's hard. That's how we stretch, right? The last thing in the world that we want to do is to try to make Jesus conform to us. We need to play his song. We need to orbit around his gravity. We need to tune into what he's doing. We need to shrink to what he's saying. You know, Jesus has always been offensive. He was offensive then, he's offensive now. What's interesting to think about is that Jesus was, um, people didn't like Jesus because he was too progressive here. You notice that? Now people don't like Jesus because he's too conservative. This whole one man, one woman thing? Seriously? You know, I mean, like that, come on, Jesus. So, so back then, he's too progressive. Now he's too conservative. Jesus didn't like, people didn't like Jesus back then because he was too inclusive. What do they say now about Christianity? It's too exclusive. What? They're like kids on the streets calling out. They're, they call John the Baptist a demon, and they call Jesus a, a wine-bibber because no matter what you do, Jesus is always going to be offensive. So don't try to make him palatable. Just preach him. People need to fit to him. That's, that's what salvation is. Surrender. Repentance. I'm so concerned by how little I hear the word repentance in Western Christianity. You know what repentance means? It doesn't just mean you you sinned and I'm sorry. It means you shape yourself to his form. You surrender. You lay down your rights. And you say, God, I'm going to be a wineskin that expands with what you want to do. You're the king. You're the purpose. You're the goal. I'm just the vessel. Expand in me. Back then, they thought Jesus was immoral. Now they think he's too moral. They, think he was, they thought he was immoral back then. Now they think he's too moral. Isn't that interesting? Paul said Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Don't try to make Jesus current. Preach the gospel. Contextualize, but preach the gospel. Jesus is a king. He needs to be worshiped. People need to be forgiven of their sin. They also need to bow the knee before Jesus, the king of the universe. That's what salvation means. Second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' work often requires both shrinking and expanding. Do you notice that? One of the pictures is about shrinking. One of the pictures is about expanding. You know, when I was studying this, I'm like, Jesus, that makes it harder to preach for me. Can't you just, I mean, categorically, can't they both have to do with stretching? And then I could just talk about how God wants to stretch everything. But he doesn't. He uses an example of shrinking and he uses an example of stretching. And I think the reason maybe, is because we need to recognize that, that, that following Jesus is going to demand both. Okay, now in this particular case, Jesus is talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. He's talking about uh, the gospel going out to all the nations. And when he talks about shrinking, Judaism's got to go. The temple was destroyed within, seven, within like 40 years. Judaism as an institution was almost gone. Shrinking, expanding, shrinking, expanding. Now let me just ask you, are you ready for both of those things in your life? Because that's what it looks like to be a vessel that can be used by God for his work. Some of you may need to expect expansion. And I don't mean in your bank accounts. 
I mean, God may bring something into your life that you don't want to do. It may flip your world upside down. God may bring up around a Levi, a Matthew, and you go, Seriously? I don't want to love this guy. Can you, by the way, can you imagine how Simon the Zealot felt when Matthew comes walking into the room? The Zealots were the anti, they, they were like the, the anti-Rome. They were literally like, uh, yeah, I don't even know how to describe them. They, they hated Rome, and here comes the traitor to sit at the table. Can you imagine how Simon's feeling? Stretching, that's stretching for him. God may be calling you to a season of stretching. He may be calling you to, to do more than you think you can do, to love people that you don't think you can love, to take on things that you don't think you can take on, and I guarantee you can't apart from his strength. Or, and here's the part we really don't like, God may be calling you into a season of shrinking. He may be calling you into a season of shrinking. Oftentimes, growing means pruning, right? And pruning is hard. Sometimes churches need to shrink. Sometimes your comfort needs to shrink. Sometimes your bank account needs to shrink. Sometimes your freedom needs to shrink in order for it to grow. Listen to me, the Western church may have to shrink before it can grow because I think it's gotten so convoluted as to what a disciple even is in this country. So I don't want it to shrink. Well, I don't think the kingdom of God's gonna shrink, but Western Christianity may need to. Are you ready for that? Your freedoms, your religious liberties may need to shrink in order for the kingdom to grow. Are you ready for that? Are you pliable? Are you ready for God to shrink? Are you ready for God to stretch? Your comforts, your achievements, your health, whatever it is, there may be shrinking. And we always assume that God is the one blessing when we have expansion, but we always assume it's not him when we're shrinking. (laughs) Can't be God allowing hard things in my life. He's a good father. He does allow hard things. I wanna end really quickly with just three ways to totally inhibit the work of God in your life. Three ways, if you wanna restrict the work of Jesus in your life. I'm gonna tell you how to do that. Three ways. Three ways to restrict Jesus' work in your life. Number one, maybe write it down. Number one, franchise revival. Stay rigid in tradition. So we do this thing, and there's, a, there's an application to this and to the church and to the individual. Let me start with the church. Here's what we do. God does a movement. He does it. He's done it for the last 2,000 years. Movement, 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 movement. And we go, thank you, Lord, and we're part of the movement, and this is exciting. And we go, man, God's making new wine. And then what do we do? We try to franchise it. We try to, we try to keep it. We, 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 we say, well, the key to the Jesus movement was that we need to teach King James Bibles and go verse by verse and we need to sit on a stool, and we need to reach out to the hippies, and whatever your movement is, the key to the, 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 this revival, or the key to that revival, the key to the reformation, the key to whatever, and, and then we, instead of seeing that God was doing the work, God was pouring out new wine, we see the wineskin, and we get really attached to it. Well, I could tell you how God, and then, and then uh, pastors write books about it. There's millions of books out there that no one's reading about how to make God work and do things. You know what that's called? Wineskins. God doesn't work the same way. The gospel stays the same. Hear me on this. The gospel stays the same, but God throughout the years has found a new expression for the wine of his spirit over and over and over again. And when we try to cram that new expression into something old, 
I'm not anti-tradition here, but I'm saying when we say, no, God only works when we do X, Y, and Z. We sing these types of songs, and we have this kind of sanctuary, and we do this kind of street ministry, and we evangelize this way. There is new wine. Are you ready for new wineskins? I'm just going to, I'm not going to claim to be a prophet, but I'm just going to guess, because that's a lot safer. Um, The whole, the church in the West is going to look completely different in the next 10 years. Are you ready for that? It can't continue the way it's going. It's going to look different. Disciples are gonna need to be made. Enough of the show. Enough of the Christian show. Disciples are gonna need to be made. Are we ready for that? And if we are so rigid in the way things used to be, I just remember back in 1980, God was really working in this one way, and I think we should be doing that. No. The gospel's where the power's at. Jesus' name is where the power at. Let it change. We're trying to do some different things here. What if we actually talk to each other on Sunday? That's, that's lit- I've had pastors like, did you think of that yourself? I'm like, no, it's just in the Bible. <laughs> Having Christians turn their chairs and talk to each other on Sunday? What about the seeker? What if they feel uncomfortable? I don't care. Church is where Christians encourage each other. Seekers need to see what the church looks like. They need to see the church interacting. That's why we do these things. We're trying to, to, to have a new wineskin, to say, God, what are you doing in 2021? What are you doing in Grant's past? The gospel is the same. The truth is the same. The gospel expression, or the gospel confession is the same, but the expression's got to change. What does it look like? What are you doing, Lord? We want to be part of that. I don't want to inhibit that by trying to franchise what God did before. I'm thankful for all the works God has done through the years, by the way. Second way, tell God who he should pick for you to love and what he should pick for you to do. God, listen, I got this all figured out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry a person that's just perfect for me, and we're gonna have a great job, and we're gonna serve on the weekends, and it's gonna be really convenient, and our kids are gonna be very well behaved, we're gonna homeschool them, and, and everything, and they're gonna be perfect, they're gonna grow up to follow Jesus because we homeschooled, because if you homeschool, your kids will be perfect, right? No, I was homeschooled, and I'm all kinds of problems, okay? You start telling God, my mom just said amen. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, the timing. Amen. All kinds of twisted. You tell God what you want your life to look like, you are a rigid wineskin. You're going to break. Here's what you say. God, I'm ready for you to do whatever you want to do. Bring whoever you want to bring. I'm going to stretch with you. It's not easy. Stretching is not easy. But you do it by believing the gospel. We do it by believing that the stretching is worth it. That, that, that the more you're stretched, listen to me, the more you're stretched, the more room there is for the Spirit of God. Man, that's so true, isn't it? You start stretching and doing things that you can't do in your own strength, the Spirit comes. He comes when you open and make room for him. He's, he comes when he's needed. He comes when you actually can't do it without him. That's when he shows up. Number three, and this same point. Number three, stop stretching. Just stop stretching. Just don't do anything that's uncomfortable. Don't do anything that pushes you. Don't do anything that makes you feel unhappy. And you will be an old wineskin. And you will ruin what God wants to do through your life. Stop stretching. I think maybe there's some of you guys in here that are feeling like something must be wrong because life's really hard right now. I must not be obeying God. Maybe I need to do something. You know, or maybe maybe God's just I don't know. Maybe God's just picking on me. What's the deal? Maybe we need to pray harder. Maybe we need to pray in faith because that'll magically access God's blessing. No, I would suggest to you that maybe things are hard um, 
within God's sovereignty, firstly, but secondly, maybe what needs to change isn't God, maybe what needs to change isn't your situation, what maybe, needs, maybe what needs to change is your perspective. Because maybe your perspective is incompatible with what God's trying to do. I can't tell you how many times that's been true in my life. God, I can't do it. Can you take this from me? Can you change that? You know, our prayer requests are almost always about what we want to change in our life. And oftentimes, the last thing we pray to change is us. God, would you give me the right perspective for this situation? Would you help me think about this differently so that I can be a pliable wineskin? That's, that's a, a conduit for what you're wanting to do through me for your grace. Amen? You imagine Jesus coming into your life and you put him on the cross. People do it all the time. Every time someone rejects Jesus, every time someone pretends to be his servant but doesn't obey him, they put him on the cross. Canceled. He's the Lord. Amen? I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna have a little bit of time of discussion. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth uh, that's in it. Thank you for the comfort of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we're not saved by our own filthy rags, that we've gotten a whole new garment. That garment is the work of Jesus Christ and we are clothed in it. And Father, when you see us, you aren't ashamed. You're delighted. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the bridegroom and you're here, you're present because your spirit is here and the spirit is the spirit of Christ in your church. And so, Lord, right now, as we do something that's totally weird in the West, where we actually talk to each other and try to encourage each other and have a conversation about the word at church, would you, Spirit of God, would you speak through us? Would you minister to the body through the body? God, would you activate gifting? People in here with gifts of encouragement, Lord. People with gifts of wisdom. Lord, would we, would we speak truth and encouragement into one another's lives as we share maybe even hard parts in our life? God, I pray you would put us in just the right circle with just the right people, And Lord, that we would be one family this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.